0: If I haven't met you, my name's Johnny. I'm one of the pastors of the church. Uh, I spend most of my time based at the Gate Church, which is kind of a church that we're connected to here at Grace Church. But I come here from time to time as well. Yes, yeah, turn to 698 and uh, I'll pray for us, then we'll, we'll read the Bible and get cracking. Lord God, we, uh, we say our purpose as a church is that we want to help people to love Jesus more and more So Father, we pray for you to be gracious and kind to us and to help us in that today Would, would you make much of your son Jesus before us? Would he uh, be delightful and wonderful and amazing to us? Would we be captivated by him in, in our minds, but in our hearts and, and, and in our lives? We pray as we, as we read, as we consider your word, that you would speak to us. Show us the beauty and wonder of your son, that, that we'd see that he is the greatest name. He's the greatest name in all of the world. And, and you would help us to, to more and more shape our lives around that reality of knowing him and seeing how great he is. We pray this in your name. Amen. So let me read from Isaiah 49, verses one to seven. Listen to me, you islands, hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword in the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel in whom I will display my splendour, but I said, I have laboured in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due to me is in the Lord's hand and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honoured in the eyes of the Lord and my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation. To the servant of rulers, kings (coughs) will see you and stand up, princes will see and bow down, because of the Lord who is faithful the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. This Friday just gone uh, was Holocaust Memorial Day. Uh, I don't know if you knew that. And on Friday, a film was released called Denial. And it's significant that they released it on Friday. Um, the film Denial is about uh, two people and, and a court case that they had about 15 or so years ago. And the two people are, are, are these, is David Irving, who's famous for being a historian who denies that the Holocaust ever happened and, uh, and a lady called Deborah Lipstadt, who's another historian and, and academic and uh, in, in, in the trial, that's the feature of the film, really history and truth are what's on trial even though it's the it's case between these two people and some accusations they're made of one another and, and what Deborah Lipstadt had to do uh, in the trial, she had to prove in court that the Holocaust did in fact happen in history she had to make that case in, in, in the High Court in this country. And so what she did, she turned to the facts and the weight of history to prove that case. She said this incredibly interesting thing, um, just recently, I think, uh, or certainly after that. Uh, and she said this, no matter what you're talking about, whether it's climate change, whether it's vaccines, whether it's alternative facts, there's truth and there are lies. There's truth and there are lies. It's it's actually quite amazing that that she says this It's a really surprising position because most people wouldn't say this sort of thing nowadays Most people are into this this kind of thing called truthiness which is where what feels right to me must be true regardless of the facts actually I mean it impacts everything that's going on around us nowadays from people's, the way they interpret history, as David Irving does with the Holocaust uh, to people's politics, to their religion how they understand gender and sexuality all of these things are impacted by this idea of of truthiness and the truth is that that most people haven't rejected truth altogether but it's just become kind of internalized and and kind of subjectivized and it's kind of relative thing inside and and it's disconnected from reality in the world the priority is is my story and how, how I experience the world see but that truthiness clearly has limits because when you get to Someone who comes along to say something so abhorrent and and so kind of disrespectful as the Holocaust never happened, why are we making such a big deal? You know, We should just stop talking about it. Why why is that an issue for anyone? Well, then we must then turn to the facts. We must then turn to history. We must then turn to the absolutes, to the truths in the world. Things that are true for everyone to say, no, actually that did happen and, and it is significant for a number of reasons. We must discount people and we turn to these things outside to prove them wrong point starting with with this quote and this story is this we don't get to make up our own truth from what feels right to us and impose it on the world no actually we as as humans as people we sit in a much bigger story And, and God is the author of that story God is the one who who sets truth and so what we need to do is we need to see what he writes what he writes, what he says, and find our place in that. And that's what we're trying to do today in, in Isaiah 49, in this little part of the story. Uh, and just to remind you where we are uh, in the story, for those of you who knew, we're, we're with God's people, Israel, and we're in exile in Babylon. God's nation have, have turned away from him and therefore have ended up in exile. And this little song that we, ra- uh, we read, it's a song or a poem, really, uh, that, that I just read from the Bible, is, is this, 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 this song to give hope and to sustain God's people and it's the second of a series of four songs which we are going to be looking at over the next few weeks these songs about this servant of God who is the rescuer coming to rescue and save God's people and these four songs uh, are quite amazing because they talk about this rescuer, this servant of God and yet they're surprising in what they say about him, they're not always saying things we'd expect this servant is, is the Jewish Messiah, the promised one that we've seen throughout Isaiah actually earlier in the story. This great king, this son who's going to be born, who's going to deliver God's people, who's going to bring a royal kingdom. But As we look at these songs later in the book, it just gets surprising what, what, what they have to say about him and what God has to say about this servant. Andy, a, a few weeks ago when we looked at the first one in Isaiah 42, remember it said, he's, he's like a bruised, um, a bruised reed he will not crush and, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. We thought this great servant of God is actually full of grace and compassion and gentleness. So today in Isaiah 49, we've got three big surprises about this servant in, 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 in this song. And, uh, and these surprises are going to sh- should shape our reality because they reveal truth to us. So let's, let's get in and see the first surprise, and that is the name of God's servant, who he is. And uh, it might not be entirely surprising to us, but it would have been, I think, to those who heard it first, first of. So in verse three uh, of what I read there on page 698, it says, uh, this is God speaking to the servant. You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. He says, you're my servant, you're, you're Israel. That's the name he, he gives, uh, God gives to the servant." And of course, Israel is the name of God's people when this was written, the nation of Israel, God's people. And, and actually throughout Isaiah around here, they are called God's servants. His people are called his servant. And that's not a derogatory thing. It's a title of honour because they are the ones whom God does, does his will, those whom he knows. But the thing is, Israel as God's servant are not doing so well right now because they've ended up in exile because of their faithful, uh, faithful, faithlessness, their rebelliousness. Uh, towards God and so they're they're proving themselves to to not be living up to to those requirements a bit earlier in, in, in 42 I don't need to turn to it but I'll just read from verse 18 this is what God says about his servant Israel hear you death look you blind and see who is blind but my servant and death like the messenger I send who is blind like the one in covenant with me blind like the servant of the Lord. You have seen many things, but have paid no attention. Your ears open, but you hear nothing. This is God's people, his servant, and he says, you're deaf, you're blind, you're, you're not paying attention, you're not listening to me, you're unbelieving. And so when we get to this song in 49, it's just incredibly surprising to them. That actually, God's project of of, uh, God's servant project, his Israel project continues he's not giving up with his faithless people no, he's doing a a new thing, here is another servant the true Israel, the one who is faithful and so it's surprising for them that actually this this, this name of Israel actually becomes focused on this single servant, this man who's gonna fulfill all of of the hopes and expectations of the nation Everything that they fail to be, this servant will be. He fulfills all of God's expectations for, for, this, for this nation, this faithful son. And we start to get a hint of who it is uh, in, in, in the story as well, but we don't get it all. Um, we see that he is God's choice. It's there at the beginning, in this, uh, at the beginning of this song in verse 1, also at the end. God's choice of servant. Before I was born, the Lord called me. For my birth, he made mention of my name. At the end, it says, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you? So this is God's choice. He's the one that that God the Father has chosen. We aren't given his name just just here, but we are later on in the story, 700 years later, a doctor called Luke introduces uh, the story of Jesus that he wants to tell people. And he opens up in in one of the earliest scenes of his story with this messenger coming to this peasant teenage girl called Mary. It's here on the screen and and the messenger says, you're going to have a boy and you're going to call him Jesus. Because he's going to be the son of the most high God. He's going to have a kingdom that never ends. Before he was born, his, his name was given, he was chosen. Luke's saying, this is the servant of God. Jesus is the one, this is his name. And so back 700 years before in Isaiah, the, the song kind of lays out the groundwork, lays out the expectation for this true Israel, for this faithful son, God's choice of servant. It's kind of building hope into, into God's people in exile. That this isn't the end. The true Israel is coming. And so the expectation of Jesus is written right into the fabric of the, the very Old Testament story of the people of Israel. For some people that would be, and still would be very surprising. That's our, our first surprise. Our second one is this, the salvation of God's servant. This is what he does. If you look with me at verse six in in Isaiah 49, God says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I would also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So this, this salvation he comes to bring just kind of gets, gets really expansive. In the first place, the, the, the servant is coming to restore Jacob or, or, or the tri, um, Israel or the tribes of Jacob to God. He's coming to overcome the unfaithfulness of God's people and, and end exile and bring them home to God. And the promise here in this verse is, until then God is keeping them. He says those who might have kept, he's keeping them until uh, this servant, faithful servant comes to, to bring them back. And this is a great promise for those those exiles in Babylon. It's a great promise of hope. They won't be wiped out. This isn't the end of the story for them. There's going to be a restoration, a return. They will be brought back. It's kind of like the faithful son of God going out to get his unfaithful rebellious brother and and bringing him back home. That's an impressive thing thing for, for this one man, this servant to do. But the song says, no, that's too small for this servant. We often say when, uh, I don't know, it's not like Cristiano Ronaldo or another great footballer, we say he needs to play on the world stage. He needs to perform at the big tournament. He's he's so talented that you need to see him in in that context. It's like this with this saviour. He's such a good saviour. Just just rescuing a nation, just rescuing uh, the, the, the history of Israel. No, he needs to do more than that. He needs to bring salvation to the very ends of the earth. This is God providing a way for his unfaithful people from all over the world. To return from all nations so it means when it says gentiles gentiles just means non-jews it's, it's probably most of us here it's God going out to bring all people all over the world back and we need to see in verse six that it's it's not just that he, he's one way of returning not just one way of coming back but he is the way this servant is the way to come back to God you could interpret it to say he will be salvation to the ends of the earth, not just he's taken salvation to the ends of the earth, but he'll be salvation to the ends of the earth. And so when Jesus was born, uh, this old guy called Simeon, who's been longing and waiting and waiting for this servant to come, for this promised saviour, when he gets to meet Jesus as a baby, he holds him up, and, uh, and, and, and he holds him up and he looks at him and he says, my eyes have seen your salvation, God." I'm looking at your salvation. I can die a happy man now. It's what I've been waiting for. He sees in Jesus the salvation, the embodiment that he is. What Isaiah 49 promises. And because of this, this is a song for the whole world. That's why it starts in verse one. Listen to me, you islands, hear this, you distant nations. To the ends of the earth, you've got to hear this song about this promised servant. He is the light in the darkness of the world and this is surprising in the story because the ancient Jews would have been surprised I think by the scope of this and, and still today the Jews miss Jesus as the Messiah for them and also that he's a Messiah for, for everyone he's the saviour for us all he's the fulfilment of all the promises of God to bless all of the people all of the nations in all the world through uh, his, his covenant with Israel through this faithful son the truth is, some, uh, or perhaps many, we're, we're shocked when we hear this, and we're thinking, well, you know, that sounds so exclusive, so such an arrogant thing to say. How can you say that this is the only way, and count so many other options and alternatives out? How how can you be say that? You no, know, a lot of kind of the prevailing thought around nowadays is this kind of relativism where actually we say stuff like everyone's right and we can kind of all find our way to God or or whatever as long as we're just kind of nice and 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 that's the most inclusive way to be and and this is the truthiness that that we sort of start kind of in in full throttle really we're trying to find truth based on what feels nice or or feels right for us we're not trying to connect it necessarily to a bigger story It's, it's kind of kind of what what feels right to us and it's a move that's looking to be really inclusive and saying, well, look, it doesn't matter what you, you think or believe about God, because you can kind of all be right at the end of the day. But actually, it ends up being very exclusive because most, uh, most of the world today and most of the people in history are excluded by this kind of view. The claims of all the major religions are, are done away with, and anyone who rejects that kind of thinking, <laughs> all of that, based on what feels right to us, not based on on things that we claim to be true or, or facts. And you know, it, it just strikes me that there must be some things that are absolutely true for everyone we don't just get to make up things that are true for ourselves about the world and just kind of what what occurs to us depending on our feelings there are objective realities in the world there are there is history there are facts and it doesn't really matter how I feel about them we need to sometimes acknowledge them and, and so that's really important when it comes to something like a Holocaust denier because we need to say no there is truth and there are lies The question for us is finding out what are the truth and and what are the lies, I guess. So here we are reading God's big story of life in the world, the truth from the God who is real. And he says he has chosen and provided his saviour to the ends of the earth. This is the saviour that God has provided. So we need to see it. This is a story that is bigger than us. It stands, in a sense, outside of us. It claims bigger realities and objective realities. That what we need to do is we need to test them, we need to probe them, we need to consider them and explore the truthfulness of this story. Don't just discount it on on the basis of of what what you know what our feelings are and let, let those shape the truth around us. Let me just give. There's loads of stuff you could say around this kind of thing and kind of can't really do it justice. Let me give one compelling evidence. I think for for this truth of, of Jesus being a saviour to the ends of the earth and that is the, the cultural diversity of Christianity, more than any other religion it is the most culturally f- flexible, the least imperialistic, the most diverse religion out there there's a few historical, you know, there are some historical losses where we kind of got this wrong uh, as Christians in the church, but, but generally, and today we see it its a religion to the ends of the earth for people all over the world. Today, Christians will be meeting in Beirut in Lebanon and, and praising God in their own cultural way and in their own language and, and honouring Jesus. They'll be in Auckland, New Zealand, uh, worshipping and praising Him in the sunshine in, in, in Shanghai, China, ro- worshipping the same Jesus, in different language, in different cultural norms, in, 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 in South America and Bolivia and in, in Nairobi and Kenya and in Toronto, Canada, St. Petersburg, Russia, all over the world today, people are following and worshipping and praising Jesus and not coming and taking on some kind of cultural norm or whatever. They're they're doing it in their own language, in their own culture, in their own way. Richard Baucombe, who is uh, a professor, or was actually a professor at St. Andrew's University, did this research project uh, and kind of uh, came out with some of these findings. And that is that... uh, Today, or at least recently, I'm not sure exactly when he carried it out, 90% of Muslims live in, in broadly one region of the world, 80% of Buddhists live in quite a large, but one region of the world, 98% of hid- Hindus live in one region of the world, Christians, however, 25% in Europe, 25% in Central or South America, 22% in Africa, 15% in Asia, 13% in North America. Now, sure, this doesn't prove the absolute truth of Christianity or of Jesus or anything like that, but it does show. It does show that Jesus really is, for all people all over the world, that salvation, this salvation of this servant, goes to the ends of the earth. And Actually, if that's true, and if if Jesus really does bring salvation for people, then it's not actually just an exclusive thing. It's an amazingly inclusive thing, and this is just the wonderful thing about this not just for all people, but for all types of people. You don't have to be rich or smart or adopt a certain culture to come to this servant to be saved, to have salvation. No, he's for all people, so he includes you, wherever you are, whoever you are, wherever you're from. Because it's salvation to the ends of the earth, it means it includes everyone. It's definitely a salvation that is available to you. Sure, it's a salvation is much bigger than you, but you, you can find your place in it by putting your trust and faith in him. And for some, maybe it's just a shock that God is interested in you and offers you salvation in Jesus. But he does, he offers it. We see later in the, in the Bible story, that actually, once Jesus has uh, died and risen and ascended, the church uh, has the responsibility. In Acts 13, this, this um, verse is quoted of, of the church to take this message of the salvation of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And so it continues today, as Christians are still taking this good news of Jesus as the Saviour to the ends of the earth, adopting uh, and adapting uh, to local cultures and customs where that doesn't compromise the message of Jesus Christ, making this salvation available and accessible to all people. We need to see, just before we move on to the final surprise, that he is effective to achieve this salvation as well. As you see in verse one, a servant listens to the call of God on his life. In verse five, it says that he's formed in the womb for a specific purpose. Kind of got the idea of um, Terminator in mind, you know, Terminator kind of given this, formed for this purpose and sent on this mission. And he lives his whole life formed around that mission. Well, Jesus, slightly different, but slightly the same. (laughs) Not coming to kill and destroy, but coming to bring salvation, but he's, he's formed for a purpose and he comes. And he, 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 he doesn't just kind of stumble upon it, just kind of stumble upon an opportunity. No, he lives according to that purpose, even from a young age. And in verse two, we see he's like a sharpened sword or, or a polished arrow. He's ready to do this work that God has for this servant. He is effective in his mission. Because he's so effective, when we get to the end of the Bible story, it finishes with this, this great song, this beautiful scene of those who have been saved from every tribe, from every nation, gathering around and worshipping this one saviour, still in all their diversity and, and with their different languages and all the rest, but coming together, this is the defining picture of Christianity, the nations who have been saved by this one king, coming together to worship and praise him, this one true saviour. It's because he brings a surprising salvation that goes to the ends of the earth. Here's our third and our, our final surprise here, and that is the response to God's servant. I wondered if, if you spotted it as, as a red, because if you if you had no background, you had no, nothing, this is the first stuff you've heard about Jesus today, right? Never heard anything about him. What would you, you'd be expecting this kind of worldwide acclaim, this rapturous reception. You know, you're thinking kind of the film reels of the, like the Beatles on tour and wherever they went, people just flocked to them. Or, I don't know today, it's like Justin Bieber or something, isn't it? I mean, that's sad. But, you know, just kind of sell out crowds, everyone wanting to just hear and see and, and touch these heroes. This amazing news God's faithful servant coming to his people, coming to bring salvation. You would have thought people would just flock and it would just be a claim and rapture. What did you see it in verse 7? As you know, he's, he's despised, he's abhorred. He's actually a servant of, of others, a servant of rulers. <coughs> isn't that still true today, isn't Jesus? Don't we see him mocked and, and pitied and just disrespected so often? We the Gospel of John, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own but his own did not receive him. This is, this is greatly surprising. This is greatly surprising. This is the big <coughs> twist, if you like, in the story of the world. God's choice of saviour comes and he is not seen. He's not accepted, he's not recognised by many. Actually, he's despised and he's rejected. We'll see where that lands up in the coming servant songs and coming weeks. On the back of that actually, John goes on later in his gospel to say, uh, record that Jesus promises that it will be similar for his followers too. So we ought not be surprised or worried or scared that Jesus, and maybe even we, are disrespected or disregarded or looked down on by other people. It's always been this way. It always will be this way for the foreseeable. But because of this response of people, Let's just have a look at verse four and see what, uh, what the implication of this is. Verse 4a. This is uh, the servant speaking. I have laboured in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. For me, for me this is the, uh, the biggest surprise actually in this song. Even though J- Jesus is this incredible Saviour who brings salvation to all people. We read here that he knows what it is to feel spent. He knows what it is to feel like he has laboured in vain. I've been thinking this week just through this, like, well, you know, how do I explain this? So what do we do with this? Because we're so used to seeing Jesus um, in the Gospels and, and, and seeing him as God. And, and, and the Gospel writers, particularly John, just show how in control Jesus is, how um, assured of his identity is, how determined he is to do his Father's will, even to the point of death on the cross. It's so clear that he wasn't doubting or unsure of his purpose. He knew what he was and what he'd come to do. And yet, I think we have to understand what what verse four says to us. I think this guy, John Oswald, says it uh, as well as we can get it. If the servant described in this passage is more than human, he is not less than human. Frustration and feelings of futility, all too familiar to everyone who inhabits flesh, were part of the burden he came to bear. To become powerless is to experience what the powerless experience. And that is the reality of what the servant's blunt retort conveys. To become powerless is to experience what the powerless experience. And that is the reality of what the servant's blunt retort conveys. And what it shows is that Jesus experiences frustration. He experiences feelings of futility. He wasn't accepted by everyone. He wasn't believed in by everyone. He was rejected. He was, he was put to death. He was murdered. He died alone. He died a God-forsaken death. And so because he had those experiences, he can relate to us, Hebrew says, and feel sympathy for our weaknesses. Because he himself experienced weakness. We need to read on in verse 4 to see, uh, just, yeah, see the importance of this. You and my servant Israel, um, sorry, I've laboured in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due to me is in the Lord's hand. And my reward is with my God. So yeah, Jesus had this experience. He, he experienced this kind of sense of futility and all the rest. But he didn't give up and his, his tiredness did not turn into unfaithful doubts. Because when he is spent, when his work feels futile, here 4B says he entrusts himself to God. He persevered, he trusted in God. He trusted God with the outcome, the right decision about his life. He, he trusted God for his reward or his payment for what he was doing, which is the salvation of all people. So yeah, he experiences futility like us, like Israel, uh, and, and yet he still has this certainty of his identity, this certainty of his calling. He, he trusts God, he comforts himself in his relationship with his father. So because this faithful son, because he did this, means we, ought not, we don't need to spend ourselves searching after our salvation, getting back to God. Because we see that he spent himself to come, and to rescue us. And it means we, we don't have to lose heart when, when we feel futile, when we feel weak. Because he is one who sympathises, you can understand our weakness. He's one who has been there and has been faithful to the end. And that is why uh, our, our final twist or our final surprise Just at the end here, as we close, though he was despised, he will finally be worshipped. If you read with me in verse 7, this is what the Lord says. The Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who is despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful. The Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Verse 3, God says to him, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendour. God is looking to display his splendour. He's looking to display his beauty, his worth, his his value, his greatness, his glory in the world. He does it through this servant. Israel's repeated failures to to trust God and, and to be faithful and to be a good servant. There was such a problem there, particularly damning, because they brought God into disrepute as they did that. His, his, God's glory was kind of bound up with them. And so they made God a stock. He seemed small and insignificant as they were taken into exile. And our failures, our, our faithlessness can so often do the same. But Jesus is the servant in whom God's splendor is on display to the ends of the earth. His name is name above all. <coughs> Looking at Jesus, we see God's greatness and God's beauty. We see... His worth and his value. It says this this verse in Habakkuk Habakkuk, which kind of looks to the future, looks to the end and, and has this great promise. It says the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There's a day where to the ends of the earth the whole creation will be filled up with the glory and the splendor and the beauty and the greatness of this faithful son, of this true Israel, of this servant. In that day, every eye will see, every mouth, every tongue will confess that Jesus, this one who though has been abhorred and despised, this one who, who maybe looks weak and futile as he dies a death on the cross, who, who seemingly spent himself for nothing, everyone will see as the glory of the Lord fills up the whole creation, that Jesus is Lord and Saviour to the ends of the earth. Let's pray.